Hello, and thank you for tuning into IRIS today. This is the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 16th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Let's look at today's weather forecast first thing, this coming from KCRG. Light snow affects the morning commute with slick roadways. Wintry conditions are back for more of eastern Iowa this morning, with some tricky travel occurring as a result. Snow had to overcome some drier air near the surface overnight, which limited the overall accumulation potential in many spots. However, we did get the atmosphere a bit more saturated early this morning, and flakes have been flying across much of the area. This light snow will continue to sag slowly south and southeast through the area, starting to exit the viewing area toward the southeast after about 8 to 10 o'clock a.m. Those south of Interstate 80 will hold onto the snow the longest, leading to prolonged periods of slick conditions. It's the snowy roadways that are causing the biggest headache to start off the day. It doesn't take a lot to cause slippery conditions and increased automotive crashes, and this morning could be a good example of that. Check on the road conditions before you head out today, and make sure you give yourself a little extra time to get where you're going this morning. Slow down where roads are wet or snow-covered, and give yourself extra stopping distance between you and the vehicle in front of you and at intersections. Mostly, just be smart and don't rush. A trace to an inch of snowfall could occur in many locations along the south of U.S. Highway 30 corridor before snow exits today. Clouds will stay around for a little while after precipitation ends, gradually clearing out as we head toward the evening. Winds will pick up later today, too, with gusts in the 20 to 30 mile per hour range from the northwest. Thus, our already chilly air temperatures in the upper 20s to low 30s today will feel more like the upper 10s and low 20s with the wind chill factored in. A rather cold start, compared to what we felt recently, will take place on Saturday, tomorrow, when wind chills could fall below zero in most spots. Those only bounce back to the 20s again by Saturday afternoon, thanks to continued blustery conditions and air temperatures that will be near the mid-30s. Sunshine will be pretty common, though, which could help make things feel a little more pleasant. We'll start to turn the corner temperature-wise on Sunday, as winds gradually shift. They'll become more westerly, allowing an uptick in temperatures into the upper 30s to mid-40s. A continued shift toward a more southerly flow will keep the warming trend going. The upper 40s to low 50s will be back as soon as President's Day on Monday. Even warmer conditions arrive in the middle of the week, with highs potentially approaching 60 for some areas. A brief cool-down looks possible toward the end of the next week, but it also looks to be short-lived. Highs once again go well above normal on the following weekend. Now we turn to the front page, and there are three articles to read, and the first one above the fold is Trump trial to start in March. Case is the first of former presidents for criminal indictments. And this story comes from the Associated Press and begins with a photograph 
of the former President Donald Trump speaking behind a barricade flanked by bodyguards with people listening in the background. Hush Money Payments Dateline New York Donald Trump's hush money trial will go ahead as scheduled with jury selection starting on March 25th, a New York judge ruled Thursday, turning aside demands for delay from the former president's defense lawyers who argued it would interfere with his campaign to retake the White House. The decision means that the first of Trump's four criminal prosecutions will proceed to trial is a case centered on accusations that he sought to bury stories about extramarital affairs that arose during his 2016 presidential run. Other cases charging him with plotting to overturn the results of the 2020 election and illegally hoarding classified documents at his Florida estate. In leaving the trial date intact, Judge Juan Manuel Merchan pointed to the recent delay in the separate prosecution in Washington related to efforts to undo the election. That case, originally set for trial on March 4th, is effectively frozen pending the outcome of Trump's appeal on the legally untested question of whether a former president enjoys immunity from prosecution for actions taken while in office. Merchant said he decided to stick with the trial date after speaking last week with the judge in the Washington trial, Tanya Chutkin. The hush money trial is expected to last six weeks. Merchant said, Assuming the New York case remains on schedule, it will open just weeks after the Super Tuesday primaries, colliding on the political calendar with a time period in which Trump will be looking to sew up the Republican race and emerge as the presumptive nominee in this year's presidential contest. Quote, we strenuously object to what is happening in this courtroom, said defense lawyer Todd Blanche, adding that, quote, the fact that we are now going to spend, President Trump is now going to spend, the next two months working on this trial, instead of out on the campaign trail running for president, is something that should not happen in this country, unquote. Trump made a similar case after leaving the courtroom, telling reporters that, quote, instead of being in South Carolina and other states campaigning, I'm stuck here, unquote. In fact, Trump has repeatedly attended court proceedings where his presence was not required and went to court Thursday voluntarily. Thursday marked Trump's first return visit to court in the New York case since that historic indictment made him the first ex-president charged with a crime. Since then, he was also indicted in Florida, Georgia, and Washington, D.C. The hearing was held amid a busy overlapping stretch of legal activity for the Republican presidential frontrunner, who has increasingly made his court involvement part of his political campaign. On Monday, for instance, he voluntarily attended a closed hearing in a Florida case, charging him with hoarding classified records. A separate hearing unfolded in Atlanta on Thursday as a judge considered arguments on whether to toss Fulton County District Attorney Fannie Willis off of the state's election interference case because of a personal relationship with a special prosecutor she hired. 
the New York case, has long been considered the least legally perilous of the four indictments filed against Trump last year, with the alleged misconduct generally known to the public for years, seen by many as less grave than accusations of mishandling classified documents or of plotting to subvert a presidential election. Chutkin officially delayed the Washington case last month with the Supreme Court now weighing the immunity question. There's no new date. The classified documents case in Florida is set for trial on May 20th, but that date could be moved. No trial date is scheduled in the Atlanta case. Over the next year, Trump lashed out at Merchant as a, quote, Trump-hating judge, asked him to step down from the case, and sought to move the case from state court to federal court, all to no avail. Merchant has acknowledged making several small donations to Democrats, including $15 to Trump's rival Biden, but said he's certain of his ability to be fair and impartial. Trump is also awaiting a decision, possibly as early as Friday, in a New York civil fraud case that threatens to upend his real estate empire. If the judge rules against Trump, who is accused of inflating his wealth to defraud banks, insurers, and others, he could be on the hook for millions of dollars in penalties, among other sanctions. Trump is charged with 34 felony counts of falsifying business records, while each count carries a potential punishment of up to four years in prison. There is no guarantee that a conviction would result in prison time. The case centers on payoffs to two women, porn star Stormy Daniels and former Playboy model Karen McDougal, as well as to a Trump Tower doorman who claimed to have a story about Trump having a child out of wedlock. Trump denies the alleged sexual encounters. Trump's lawyer at the time, Michael Cohen, paid Daniels $130,000 and arranged for the publisher of the National Enquirer supermarket tabloid to pay McDougal $150,000 in a practice known as catch and kill. Trump's company then paid Cohen $420,000 and blogged the payments as legal expenses, not reimbursements, prosecutors said. Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, a Democrat, charged Trump last year with falsifying internal records kept by his company, the Trump Organization, to hide the true nature of the payments. Trump's legal team argues no crime was committed. <laughs> Iowa GOP lawmakers moved to limit challenge to Trump, ban ballot drop boxes. Story written by Tom Barton of the Gazette-Lee Des Moines Bureau. Dateline Des Moines. Iowa voters would no longer be able to return absentee ballots in drop boxes under legislation that also would make it harder to challenge Donald Trump's eligibility to appear on the 2024 general election ballot. House Republicans on Thursday advanced out of committee House Study Bill 697, which makes changes to state elections law that would limit challenges to federal candidates' placement on the ballot, create an earlier deadline for absentee ballots to be received by local election officials, ban 
absentee ballot drop boxes and ban ranked choice voting, among other changes. Democrats vehemently opposed the bill, arguing it would make it harder for certain Iowans to cast a ballot. Republicans said the bill aims to maintain the highest level of election integrity in Iowa. Quote, This will make it easier to vote, not harder. It gives you more time to vote, said Representative Bobby Kaufman, who is a Republican from Wilton, who chaired the subcommittee on the bill. Representatives for county auditors, the League of Women Voters, and AARP Iowa opposed the bill, saying it would make it more difficult for older Iowans and people with disabilities to return their ballots. They also said it has become a constant struggle to educate Iowans about new voting rules and deadlines. Lawmakers in recent years have shortened Iowa's early voting period and stripped auditors of much of their discretion in running elections in their counties, including restricting their ability to establish satellite in-person early voting sites and mail absentee ballot request forms. Under the bill, absentee ballots would have to be received by the county auditor by the close of business on the day before Election Day to be counted. Currently, ballots can be received until the end of the day on Election Day. Auditors would be able to begin mailing out absentee ballots two days earlier to compensate for the earlier deadline. That would give Iowa voters an additional day to mail back absentee ballots. In-person early voting still would begin 20 days in advance of an election. The bill also would require absentee voters to include their driver's license or voter identification numbers when returning their ballots. Current law only requires voters to provide those numbers when they submit a written request for a ballot. It would set new requirements for absentee ballot envelopes, which the Iowa State Association of County Attorneys says would require counties to incur major costs by buying all new envelopes. Kaufman, speaking to reporters, said absentee ballot drop boxes are no longer needed with the end of the COVID-19 public health emergency. COVID-19 severely disrupted elections in 2020. State voting systems were overwhelmed by long lines and influx of absentee ballot requests, leading to the use of drop boxes. Quote, we no longer are in a COVID atmosphere, and there are already blue drop boxes in every single city and every single county in the entire state, Kaufman said, referring to U.S. Postal Service mailboxes. Voting rights activists and county election officials, however, note mail delivery may be delayed and take several days, whereas a drop box lets voters know for a fact their absentee ballot has been received. Quote, you have 21 days to vote, Kaufman said. That's plenty of time. Democrats counter. Representative Adam Zabner, a Democrat from Iowa City, said the new restrictions on absentee voting could prevent thousands of Iowans from having their ballots counted. He said 13,883 Iowans during the 2022 general election returned their ballots via an absentee ballot drop box that are secured and monitored 24-7.
and 3,000 Iowans returned absentee ballots on Election Day, and about 150 ballots that would have been valid under previous Iowa law were not counted due to new restrictions on absentee ballot voting enacted in 2021, he said. Quote, It is a lie to say that elections have been stolen in this country in recent years, Zabner said during the committee meeting. And the truth is, we have plenty of integrity in our system. This bill is about keeping the right to vote away from certain Iowans, unquote. Democrats proposed amendments to make voting easier and more accessible, including automatic voter registration, expanding early voting to 45 days, and allowing county auditors to begin counting absentee ballots earlier, making it harder to remove people from voter rolls, expanding use of ballot drop boxes, and allowing counties discretion to establish satellite voting locations, which Republican members of the committee rejected. Quote, Democrats are legislating to put people over politics. We want as many Iowans involved in the voting process as possible, Zabner told reporters after the meeting. We want people to have access to their fundamental rights, and Republicans are legislating for one man, Donald Trump. They want to make it harder for Iowans to vote, unquote. Trump nonsense. Kaufman, who worked as a senior advisor for Trump's presidential campaign in Iowa, dismissed the assertion calling claims of suppression nonsense that have been proven wrong over and over and over again. The new law would allow candidates for Congress and the presidency to appear on Iowa's ballot even if they've been convicted of a felony. Candidates for federal offices could only be challenged on U.S. constitutional requirements on the candidate's age, residency, citizenship, and whether their nominating papers meet all the legal requirements. That would prohibit Iowa-based ballot challenges like the one in Colorado, where that state's Supreme Court decided Trump should not be on the Republican primary ballot. Trump faces 91 felony charges in four criminal cases around the country, and he has faced challenges to his candidacy under Section 3 of the U.S. Constitution's 14th Amendment, that bars officials from holding office again if they, quote, have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the United States. Iowans, however, could still challenge Trump's eligibility in court. Kaufman, speaking to reporters after the committee meeting, said ballot access should be determined by the people, not activists on either side. Quote, these laws, in my opinion, make Iowa the strongest election integrity state in the country, he said. State Auditor, GOP, Fight Over Access to Agencies Story written by Aaron Murphy, who is in the Courier's Des Moines Bureau. And the story begins with a photograph of State Auditor Rob Sand seated at a table as he speaks to the Waterloo-Cedar Falls chapter of the Institute of Management Accountants in March of 2023, at the University of Northern Iowa. Dateline, Des Moines. The ability of the state's taxpayer watchdog to access information from other state agencies during an audit, and the limits of that watchdog's authority, are being tested 
as Democratic Auditor Rob Sand tussles over state audits with Republican lawmakers and the state board whose members were appointed by Republican Governor Kim Reynolds. The day after Republican state lawmakers advanced new legislation that would allow government agencies to bypass the state auditor and have their annual audits instead conducted by a private accountant, Sand on Thursday highlighted the Iowa Board of Parole's recent rejection of his office's request for some information during an audit, citing a new state law approved last year. Sand said the rejection by the Iowa Board of Parole is the first example of a government body declining to fully cooperate with an audit by citing the 2023 law, which placed guardrails on the kind of information that the state auditor can seek during an investigation when it was passed last year and again during a news conference on Thursday. Sand called it, quote, the most pro-corruption bill in Iowa history, unquote. Quote, today we are issuing the first report telling the public that the truth remains hidden from them as a result of that law, Sand said Thursday during a news conference. Quote, government corruption and secrecy are growing in the state of Iowa, unquote. The parole board said it refused Sands' request because it fell outside the scope of the audit and that Sands' office needed to file a separate request, known as an engagement letter, for the information that he sought. Quote, audit engagement letters set out the rights and responsibilities of the parties to the audit for the benefit of both the auditor, and the agency. As noted in the audit report, the Board of Parole requested an engagement letter as required by Iowa law. The auditor refused to provide one, said a statement sent by a spokeswoman for the Board of Parole. The audit report from Sands' office noted that the parole board failed to have one regular member in attendance for some hearing panels that alternate board members which was a violation of state law. In the audit report, the parole board said it learned of the improper action and reviewed the panels to bring them into compliance. When Sands' office requested documentation to confirm those actions, the board of parole declined to respond, saying the information was related to ongoing litigation and not related to the audit. Sand said the report started from a whistleblower's tip. Quote, Can we tell you the board will fix this problem on their own? We can't. Can we tell you they fixed the problem at all? We can't, Sand said during the news conference. Quote, no one in the state knows other than a bunch of government insiders because of the bill that this building passed and the governor signed last year. That 2023 law was introduced by Representative Michael Bosalat, a Republican from Ankeny. Earlier this week, Bosalat introduced another bill that would affect the auditor's office. His 2024 proposal would, instead of having their annual audit conducted by the Iowa Auditor's Office, allow government agencies and officials to hire a private accountant to conduct an audit. Critics of the proposal, including Sand, have said Senate File 2311 opens the door to political corruption by allowing government officials to bypass the state auditor 
for annual audits. Busselot noted that hiring a private accountant to conduct a required annual audit is already allowed for and widely employed by local governments and school districts. Quote, only in politics could hiring a nonpartisan, independent, licensed, certified public accountant be labeled as political, Bosolo said. Quote, it boggles the mind that it has worked so far so well and allowed for accountability and effectiveness at the local government level, unquote. Sand and Bosolot disagree over whether the state auditor would retain the authority to reinvestigate private audit reports under the proposed bill. Bosolot insists his proposal does nothing to restrict the auditor's ability to conduct an audit if there appear to be weaknesses in an audit conducted by a private accountant. Sand insists his office would not have that authority under the Bosolot's bill. The bill was passed out of committee this week, surviving the legislature's funnel deadline. It is now eligible for floor debate in the Senate. <laughs> Feds say FBI informant lied about the Bidens. Smirnov charged with fabricating bribery tale about energy company. Story from the Associated Press, and the dateline is Washington. An FBI informant was charged this week with fabricating a bribery scheme involving President Joe Biden, his son Hunter, and a Ukrainian company, a claim that is central to the Republican impeachment inquiry in Congress. Alexander Smirnov falsely reported in June 2020 that executives associated with the Ukrainian energy company Burisma paid Hunter and Joe Biden $5 million each in 2015 or 2016, prosecutors said Thursday. Smirnov, 43, was indicted Wednesday on charges of making a false statement and creating a false and fictitious record. He made a brief court appearance Thursday in Las Vegas, but entered no plea. The informant's claims have been central to the Republican effort in Congress to investigate the president and his family and helped spark what is now a House impeachment inquiry into Biden. Prosecutors say Smirnov had contact with Burisma executives, but it was routine and actually took place in 2017, after President Barack Obama and Biden, his vice president, left office, and after Smirnov, quote, expressed bias against Biden, then a presidential candidate. New 24-hour diner to take place of former University Avenue Perkins, Waterloo. After four years sitting empty, the former Perkins on University Avenue will be home of a new 24-hour diner. Mike's Diner, 3280 University Avenue, is set to open at the beginning of March. Owner Mike Noel hopes to serve the community, quote, all-American comfort food. Noel began looking at the property in November. Perkins closed in January 2020 after the parent company filed for bankruptcy. Other contributing factors were major reconstruction of University Avenue at the time and ongoing management issues at the restaurant. He said people drive by to ask him what's going on with the building, 
as window overhangs spell out Mike's, and the Perkins letterboard states the diner will open soon. The idea of keeping the space as a diner came because Noel believes people in the Cedar Valley just want good food, a good price, and a clean atmosphere. Customers will be able to order breakfast all day. Noel said a breakfast platter, which would include eggs, meat, and some type of pancake, waffle, or toast, will cost $8.99. Other breakfast items will include skillets, omelets, breakfast sandwiches, waffles, pancakes, and French toast. The menu also will include lunch and dinner favorites, such as burgers, chicken, tenderloins, patty melts, Reuben's, French dips, casseroles, meatballs, soup and fish and chips. Baked goods and pie also will be available. Noel believes the location will serve up nostalgia for its customers. After hearing stories of fond memories from community members, the decision to buy the building was solidified. Some of the most meaningful comments came from University of Northern Iowa football players who helped him move equipment. Quote, it's so funny because there's these big burly guys and all of a sudden they just get all mushy. Thinking about grandpa and dad as a kid, he said. And now listeners, we just want to take a moment to remind you that you're listening to the reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 16th on IRIS. That's I-R-I-S, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind and the Print Handicapped. Now, this announcement. It only took Jeff one interview to land his job, one smile to get his wife to go out with him, and one time to risk it all by trying meth. Meth. Never, ever. Visit yourlifeiowa.org, brought to you by the Iowa Department of Public Health. Now, let's turn to the opinion page. Our first editorial today comes from the Storm Lake Times pilot and was written by Art Cullen. Calm yourself. What would Mel Brooks do? A congenital optimist, or so he claimed on social media, had turned to despair over the superficiality of our politics and civic life. I know the feeling. The despair part. The Iowa legislature is in session. Stupid can be funny. It's something to hang on to while you get through hard times. Such as Republican legislators breaking out into singing the Star-Spangled Banner while attempting to require every school kid to sing it every day. Beverly Sills could barely master the tune. Laura Bellin, the bleeding Heartland blogger, fought for years to gain press credentials and finally got them after suing the house clerk so she could witness this Imagining the scene makes me laugh. They're so hung up about sex and sexual identities, they can think of little else besides getting rid of income taxes and higher education. Conversations in the cloakroom among a bunch of sexually frustrated guys with beards must be titillatingly absurd. What would Mel Brooks say? I think he already did in Blazing Saddles when he portrayed Governor Petomaine, which in French, means farting maniac. First, God gave us fools for laughter. So laugh. There is much to fret about. 
Governor Reynolds wants to disable the area education agencies. She will not give up on harassing gay and transgender people, an unhealthy obsession. Legislators are trying to undermine colleges because they teach people how to think critically. Eliminating the income tax will create big problems. Iowa has been on a rightward lurch for many years that makes International's Falls look halfway attractive in February. Take heart. Average Iowans are planting their flag. Our liberties we prize, our rights we will maintain, and are fighting back. Special ed moms are not to be trifled with. They organized, crowded the Capitol, and overwhelmed legislators. The House threw out Reynolds's bill to gut the AEAs. The governor with a tenure is not going quietly on the issue. That should be entertaining. Likewise, a House committee scotched a bill that would strike civil rights protections over gender identity following intense criticism of citizens flooding the State House. Legislators noticed that the Moms for Liberty got their hats handed to them in city and school elections last fall across Iowa. We would prefer that our moral peccadilloes are not hung out by politicians. We are, at root, disturbed by book bans and distorting history. The pendulum swings right and back toward center. Reynolds is not having her undisputed way. Legislators see how weak she is with the humiliation of Ron DeSantis suffered following her endorsement. Representative Megan Jones, a Republican from Sioux Rapids, does not appear to be shaking in her boots over threats to primary her for standing against gay discrimination. Also recall that Warren County voters ran off the county auditor for being an election denier, this in a country that voted heavily for Donald Trump but did not buy into the big lie. If your child were gay or in need of speech therapy, or you don't want to be a member of the youth brigade, you might just shake Iowa off your boots. But people are staying and fighting for their rights and for what this state could be. They got some of the worst ideas so far killed. There are plenty more bad ideas, like restoring the death penalty. But there are cracks exposed in the right-wing architecture that are being exploited. Many Republicans understand that they might have gone too far in their culture wars. In Washington, the House is set to reject a Senate border security compromise. It makes clear that the GOP wants to maintain a dysfunctional system in perpetuity for political purposes. Voters will come to digest that with the help of the Biden campaign. They want solutions, not more pointless argument. The GOP could lose the House over it, and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell fears keeping his title because of it. Senator Chuck Grassley, the old Republican warhorse, says he wants to hold up a bipartisan bunch of tax breaks because it might help Biden. It is so bald, it's funny. Embrace the absurd. The MAGA Corps is melting down over a woman wearing a sequined garter and a Kansas City Chiefs jacket. Who thought Taylor Swift could strike such loathing just by hugging Travis Kelsey's mom in the skybox? It could swing the election, if not the Super Bowl, they chatter. Great stuff. Wait till we get to the part when Trump attempts 
to deliver the inaugural dress in absentia while wearing an ankle monitor. We got it all. Sex, love, a neutered mob boss, a plodding attorney general, a teetering incumbent, and great masses wanting someone's head on a pike. And we have self-correcting democracy still, so far. It is working at a certain level in Iowa, where we appear to be retreating from some of our worst excesses. If you can appreciate the satire, you can find your way forward, or laugh at your despair. From the New York Times, written by Nicholas Kristof, We Americans Neglect Our Children. And it begins with a photograph of what appears to be a teenager with his back toward the camera, sitting at a lunchroom table with his head down on the table and a backpack in front of him. And here's the text. Individually, we adore and pamper our children. We shuttle them from soccer practice to music lessons and then organize their playdates with meticulous fanaticism. Yet collectively, we mistreat America's children, especially by the standards of other wealthy countries. When we're formulating policies for children as a whole, rather than coddling our own little angels, we fall scandalously short. We prize children in the abstract, but as a society, tend to ignore their needs. Children are more likely to go hungry or live in poverty in America than in most of our peer countries, and they are also much more likely to die because of drugs, guns, accidents, and an inequitable health care system. If the United States simply had the same mortality rates for young people as the rest of the rich world, we would annually save the lives of at least 40,000 Americans aged 19 and under, according to Stephen Wolf, a population health expert at Virginia Commonwealth University. In other words, an American child dies about every 13 minutes because we don't do a good job as our peers in protecting kids, and it's getting worse. An American child's chances of reaching adulthood have fallen in recent years, Wolf told me. This election year, these are issues that should be central in the battles between Democrats and Republicans. They're not. For children don't vote and are political orphans. The consequences are felt not just by low-income children at the margins. A country as a whole can't thrive when so many are left behind. What distinguished the United States for more than a century, and it helped it become the world's leading economy, was strong mass education that included widespread high school and college attendance, even as some European countries did better with elite education. But over the last 50 years, we've faltered in supporting and educating children overall as other countries have moved ahead. We've tried to fix problems at the back end with the juvenile justice system or criminal justice system or with those alerts to look out for human traffickers. But we have entire failed structures like foster care. Fewer than 5% of young people who've spent time in foster care graduate from a four-year college. Several studies suggest that up to 60% of trafficking survivors have been in the system. Yet when was the last time a politician was asked how to fix foster care? 
I've been thinking about this because I recently participated in the Summit on America's Kids and Families, hosted by Common Sense Media. James Staler, the group's founder, wants to push children onto the local, state, and national agenda this year, maybe a million-child march on Washington, so that political candidates are forced to answer questions about our indifference to the well-being of children. In the closing session at the summit, a few of us talked about what a pro-child agenda might look like. Here are my suggestions. An early child care program modeled after the one that exists in the United States military. If our armed forces can operate a child care program with fees based on ability to pay, then the rest of the country can as well. A government-supported early childhood program rescues parents and kids alike. Roughly one child in six is living with a parent who misused drugs in the last year, and some of these children can find a lifeline in a high-quality program like Educare that also coaches parents. Other rich nations spend an average of about 29 times as much on child care per toddler as the United States. And the next idea, an expanded refundable child tax credit to cut child poverty. Most other wealthy countries have introduced a monthly child allowance to lift children out of poverty, and the United States followed in 2021 with the refundable child tax credit. It was a huge success that helped slash child poverty almost in half, one of the most successful policies of my lifetime. And then Republican opposition caused the program to expire at the end of 2021, and child poverty has soared again. Next idea, a new regulatory body to oversee technology companies and new media, just as the Federal Communications Commission oversees old media. Senator Michael Bennett of Colorado has championed this idea, and it has become urgent as TikTok and artificial intelligence play a growing presence in children's lives. Young people already face a crisis in mental health that appears correlated to the spread of smartphones and social media. I don't want to overregulate, but tech companies need oversight as they monetize our children. Next idea, improvements in K-14 education to get every child literate, numerate, graduating from high school and, where possible, into at least community college, the military, or technical training. American children are particularly incompetent at math in ways that hold our entire country back. If even Mississippi, with unconscionable child poverty, can focus on reading and significantly raise education outcomes, then no state has an excuse for letting students fail. The best metric for a society's future is how well it nurtures its next generation. So this election year, let's look beyond the political horse race and culture war to grill candidates on their policies toward children and thus our country's future. Now, from the New York Times, Trump, Immigration, and the Lump of Labor Fallacy. Written by Paul Krugman. What did Kurt Vonnegut, the novelist, and Francois Mitterrand, the socialist president of France from 1981 to 1995, 
have in common with Donald Trump? Both, at some point, believed in what economists call the lump of labor fallacy. This is the view that there is a fixed amount of work to be done and that if someone or something, some group of workers or some kind of machine, is doing some of that work, that means fewer jobs for everyone else. And Trump clearly shares that belief. As I noted in my most recent column, it underlies his hostility to immigration. Well, that and his belief that immigrants are, quote, poisoning the blood of our country, unquote. It also underlies his protectionism. So this seems like a good time to talk about the lump of labor fallacy, how we know it's a fallacy, and why it's a zombie, an idea that refuses to die, and instead keeps shambling along, eating people's brains. First, about Vonnegut and Mitterrand. Vonnegut's first novel, Player Piano, published in 1952, envisioned a grim future in which automation has led to mass unemployment. The machines can do everything, so there's no need for human workers. Mitterrand, coming to power in a nation that had experienced a large rise in unemployment since the early 1970s, reduced France's retirement age from 65 to 60, in part because he and his advisors believed that encouraging older French citizens to leave the workforce would free up jobs for younger workers. Mitterrand's successors have spent decades trying to undo the damage. Why is there always a substantial group of people, the lumpen commentariat, who believe that there's a limited amount of work to be done, so machines that increase productivity, or immigrants entering the workforce, take away jobs? Many of these people probably haven't even tried to think their views through. But it's also true that something like the lump of labor story does make sense if you think about an individual industry in isolation. For example, long ago, one of my uncles operated a factory using plastic injection molding to produce lawn ornaments. Basically, he was supplying the then burgeoning suburbs of New York with pink flamingos. Since there was, presumably, a limited demand for pink flamingos, machines that allowed production of pink flamingos with fewer workers would reduce employment in the industry, while entry of new producers would take away jobs from existing pink flamingo workers. Or to take a less whimsical example, there are limits to the amount of food people want to consume. So, rising productivity in agriculture leads to reduced need for farmers. America has about twice as many people now as it did when Vonnegut published Player Piano, but employs only around a third as many people in agriculture. But while there's limited demand for pink flamingos or wheat, there's no evidence that there's limited demand for stuff in general. When incomes rise, people will find something to spend their money on, creating jobs for workers displaced by technology or newcomers to the workforce. Machines do, in fact, perform many tasks that used to require people. Output per worker is more than four times what it was when Vonnegut wrote, so we could produce 1950s level of output with only a quarter of as many workers. In fact, however, employment has tripled. Just to be clear, I'm not saying that technological progress 
can never hurt workers or some groups of workers. Technology that makes a traditional occupation largely disappear. For example, the way freight containerization more or less eliminated the need for longshoremen can be devastating for those displaced. And what's referred to as biased technological change, which reduces demand for some inputs while increasing it for others, can reduce the real incomes of large groups. Many economists believe that skill-based technological change, which raises the demand for highly educated workers as an input and decreases it for less skilled labor, has been a factor in rising inequality. Although many others, myself included, are skeptical, it's at least arguable that capital-biased technological change caused real wages to stagnate during the early stages of the Industrial Revolution. But the crude argument that technological progress causes mass unemployment because workers are no longer needed is just wrong. What about competition from new workers? If you're worried about immigrants taking away jobs from native-born Americans, consider the effect of truly huge influx to the labor market a mass movement of American women into paid work from the mid-1960s to around the year 2000. Did working women take jobs away from men? I'm sure many men thought they would, but they didn't. The big rise in women's employment didn't come at men's expense. True, there has been a small decline in male employment over the past six decades, perhaps reflecting the decline of manufacturing and the emergence of left-behind regions in the heartland. But the millions of women entering the paid workforce clearly didn't displace male workers. Which brings me to current concerns about immigration. As I noted in my column, Trump and those around him clearly believe that immigrants take jobs away from native-born Americans. And I also noted that all of the increase in employment since the eve of the COVID-19 pandemic has involved foreign-born workers. So did this rise in immigrant employment come at the expense of native-born workers? When looking at the numbers, it's important to take into account the effects of an aging population, which has caused a long-term downward trend in labor force participation. So I asked Adriajat Dubier of the University of Massachusetts, Amherst, one of America's top labor economists, and someone who knows his way around Bureau of Labor Statistics data much better than I do, to calculate employment rates among prime-age native-born Americans. Here's what he found. Even though immigrants as a group are responsible for all recent employment growth, they haven't been taking jobs from native-born, who are more likely to be employed in their prime working years than they were before the pandemic. By the way, I mentioned earlier that Trump's protectionism involves the same kind of lump-sum thinking that pervades his views on immigration. Trump and those around him, like Peter Navarro, his top trade advisor, currently facing prison time for contempt of Congress, are obsessed with trade deficits. If you read what they've had to say on the subject, it's clear that they imagine that there's a fixed amount of demand in the world, and that any business that goes to foreigners is business lost to America. It's lump sum all the way. Now, 
Of course I don't think that this evidence, or, for that matter, any evidence on any subject, will change Trump's thinking on this or anything else. But there are some people who imagine that they're being sophisticated and forward-thinking when they're actually recapitulating old fallacies. No, AI and automation, for all the changes they may bring, won't ultimately take away jobs, and neither will immigrants. Don't join the lumpen commentariat. And now we have an opinion piece that was written by guest columnists Hannah Hayes and Trey Jackson, and this appeared in the Des Moines Register on February 1st, 2024. Hannah Hayes and Trey Jackson are members of March for Our Lives, Iowa. Following the fatal shooting in Perry, Governor Kim Reynolds was quoted in the register as saying, quote, No additional gun laws would have prevented what happened. There's just evil out there, unquote. This statement completely disregards data related to gun violence prevention legislation. March for Our Lives Iowa recently released its legislative agenda outlining exactly how gun violence is preventable, specifically extreme risk protection orders allow law enforcement to intervene and prevent potential shooters from accessing a weapon temporarily if they pose a threat to themselves or others. Their effectiveness has been empirically proven to reduce suicides and mass shootings, according to a review by experts at the University of California, Davis. Yet, this type of legislation continues to be ignored by our legislators. While evil will always exist, that doesn't mean we cannot prevent this evil from stealing more lives like the ones lost in Perry. The hundreds of youth who walked out of class and gathered at the Capitol in protest following the Perry shooting had a message for our leaders. Enough is enough. At that protest, we delivered a letter to our governor. Here is an excerpt of what the youth of Iowa had to say. Quote, what happened in Perry is an all-too-common occurrence in Iowa. Students go to school every day fearing for their lives, never knowing if their school is next. The most devastating part, each and every tragedy and life lost was preventable. Countless Iowans, including a sixth-grade student and the principal at Perry Middle School, could still be alive today. Quote, Action must be taken now. Iowa must pass extreme risk protection laws, hate crime prohibitions, and mandatory reporting of lost or stolen guns. Stand with Iowans in the face of this terrible tragedy. Quote, After the shooting at East High School, you dismissed the desperate need for gun safety laws. Iowans tried to tell you to take action. We pleaded that now must be the time to pass meaningful gun legislation. But devastatingly, no action was taken. You put our lives on the line. Quote, then a year later, after another deadly shooting at Starts Right Here, you said, quote, My heart breaks for them, these kids and their families. Yet again, nothing was done. Now, after the shooting at Perry High School, all you have to offer are more empty words. Our hearts are heavy today, and our prayers are with everyone in the Perry community. Still, nothing has been done. You passed book bans. Don't say gay bills. 
and abortion restrictions, all in the name of, quote, protecting children. However, you have failed to protect the students at East. You have failed to protect the youth at Starts Right Here. You have failed to protect the children at Perry. And without meaningful gun safety legislation, you have failed to protect the citizens of Iowa from the inevitable gun violence yet to come. Quote, Governor Reynolds, the people of Iowa are asking you to take action and prevent gun violence. If not for yourself or your party, pass legislation for the protection of youth across this state. Unquote. And now, listeners, that's going to do it for today's reading of the Waterloo Cedar Falls Courier for Friday, February 16th. I'm your volunteer reader, Bob Young. Remember, you can listen to a recording of this reading of The Courier or of the other newspapers around the state that we read. Just visit our website, iowaradioreading.org, at any time. And we want to thank you for listening to your IRIS, Iowa's first and only radio reading service. <laughs>